Father, we, um, we come today with a really important passage in a really wonderful book. And I pray that you would make my mouth a conduit to describe things that are unspeakable, that are beyond human words, beyond the English language, beyond the ability of a human tongue to even fully describe. We pray that, Jesus, you would come, that, Holy Spirit, you would fill this very room, and that, Father, you would be exceedingly lifted up and glorified that we would see the beauty of your eminence in the display of your Son, and that we will feel the overflowing grace that comes through him. And I pray that we would sense the beauty of things that we can hardly even imagine, that we would get a foretaste of what's to come in glory. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm curious this morning, how many of you grew up in a church or in a home where you used a catechism. Can you raise your hand? Now, for some of you, that brings back some bad memories, doesn't it? You remember being in a catechism class that seemed rather dry and dusty, and for others, perhaps it was a good memory where you learned some great doctrinal truths. If you're not familiar with a catechism, what it is, it is a series of questions and answers about the content of the Bible. It's an attempt to summarize in a concise and clear way particular biblical truths. And in particular, it was used to uh, instruct children in the, the doctrines of the faith. In fact, it was so important that in the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon wrote his own catechism. And he said this about the importance of catechism. He said, the use of a good catechism in all our families will be a great safeguard against the increasing errors of our times. Interestingly, catechisms are having a bit of a comeback. Old-time catechisms, a few examples, would be the Westminster Longer Shorter Chasm, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, and Spurgeon's Catechism. A couple examples of some of the questions and answers. Here's one. What is sin? Listen, answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Question. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Listen. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for our salvation as He offered to us in the gospel. So, what you need to know about a catechism is that these questions and their answers are critically important and they're so ripe with clear and concise statements about our biblical worldview. They they help us to understand what we believe. Now, probably the most famous of all the catechism questions is the first question in the Westminster Shorter and Longer Catechism. That question goes like this. What is the chief end of man? Answer, read this with me. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. See, ultimately, this question and its answer is important because they answer the question as to what is life really all about. So in that question, we have the answer, rather in that answer to that question, we have a summary of why we exist, what's really valuable, and what God is doing. Clear, concise summaries of truths can be really, really helpful. 
And when we look at 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 70, that's what we have today. It's not a catechism. But what we have here, friends, is a clear, concise summary of incredible truth. Truth about God, truth about mankind, truth about the gospel. So Paul, after addressing issues of false teachers, their improper use of the law, takes all of this content and makes it personal. And last week we learned about Paul's view of his past, and we learned gloriously that God's grace is greater than his past, and not only that, it's greater than your past. That God conquered our past, and this grace has overflowed for us in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We learned that the law calls us to run, but it gives us neither feet or hands. We learned greater news the gospel brings. It bids us fly, and what? Gives us wings. So now, verse 15 to 17 drives this even deeper. The overwhelming nature of God's grace might cause someone to ask, why would God be this merciful? Or another way to ask the question would be this, what is God up to? Or even this question, why does God save people? Some people would answer that question, why God saves people, by saying that God is lonely and he wants company. And nothing could be further from the truth that God is lonely. Others would suggest that the reason that God saves people is because we're so incredibly valuable and special. All it takes is just knowing yourself to know you're, well, true, you're made in the image of God, but you're nothing special. I mean, come on, I'm nothing special. And for that matter, we're horrible, awful sinners. So why does God save? What is the purpose of his salvation? What is the goal of our redemption? What is the plan of God? What is the aim of the gospel? You know what the aim of the gospel is? Friends, it's this. It is that God saves people to display his glory. He saves people in order to make them a conduit of his glory, his holiness, And for the whole universe to see the beauty of all of what he is for us in Jesus Christ. This is, this is the chief end of man. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 17 gives us three expressions or three angles to look at this central truth of God saves people for his glory own glory to display his glory the first is he saves undeserving sinners that's what we're going to look at secondly he shows us that god saves in order to display his great mercy and then third to the praise of his name and so we're going to look at each of these three and see how all of this results in unbelievably beautiful doxology i want you leaving today really in love with god i want you leaving here today just going oh how i love you So first, Paul begins this summary in verse 15 by saying this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, Paul uses this four other times in the pastoral epistles as a matter of introduction of important phrases. And he uses this phrase, this statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, to introduce a further concise clear statement about important doctrinal realities and although what we have that follows is not a catechism per se it certainly is a wonderful summary of doctrinal truth so first why does god save he saves in order to rescue undeserving sinners the text says that 
what's going to come is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That means two things. First, it means that what he's going to say is true, that there's a weight of truthfulness, of veracity, of importance of what will follow. This is important news. Secondly, he affirms that the message is deserving of full acceptance. Now, you might think at first that this means that that it deserves to be fully accepted, but it doesn't mean depth. What it means is breadth. So what he's saying is this statement is true. That's the depth. And worthy of full acceptance, meaning broad-ranging acceptance of this truth. Where should the gospel be preached? Where should it be accepted? Where should it be declared? Answer everywhere. This truth is deep and it is wide. Some of you kids sing that in Sunday school, don't you? Deep and wide, right? Deep and wide, there's a what? Fountain flowing, right? You know that song, right? Deep and wide. You know what you're singing, kids? When you sing deep and wide, you are saying that the gospel is really important and it's meant to go all over the world like Pakistan. It's deep, but it's also wide. Paul says this statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Remember that the message of this book is to guard the truth that leads to life. And the reason why the truth must be guarded is because it must be guarded in order for it to be accepted globally. Why is the global message so critical to the spread of the gospel? Why does the Great Commission say, make disciples of all nations? Why is God's mission to expand His message all over the world? The reason is the glory of God is so compelling, so satisfying, so glorious, and so beautiful that the glory of God deserves to go global. The gospel deserves to go global, not just because there's sinners everywhere. The gospel needs to go global because God's glory is that significant. From every tribe and nation and tongue, we want to hear, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. The compelling motive for giving at Christmas time for this Christmas offering is not just because there are people who have never heard. It is because there are people who in their never hearing will never say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. The compelling driving force for missions is not just the lost condition of the world. It is for the absence of the global proclamation of the glory of God. One person has said it like this, missions exist because worship doesn't. So what is the message? This message is trustworthy. It is the simple and life-changing truth, verse 15, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. In 15 words, Paul summarizes the most important and life-transforming truth in all the world. This is your first time at College Park. You need to know that this is what we are all about. At the end of the day, we live for one particular message. It is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom, of whom I, I, I am the foremost. We find here that Jesus comes into the world, the incarnation. He he becomes one of us. God enters our sinful world and becomes one of us. And even more, it says that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Save sinners. Those two words we know and we put them together all the time. Save sinners, save sinners. Those two words do not go together naturally. Save sinners, that's almost an oxymoron. In light of all of God's holiness, sinners deserve not to be saved. Sinners deserve to be punished, to be condemned, to be judged, and to be banished. 
And the glory of the gospel is that God does not only not condemn sinners, but instead he punishes his own son that those who believe in Jesus might be saved. That is unbelievably good news. The word saved. The word saved. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. That word means to make safe. It can be translated as deliver, to protect, or to preserve. So here's the question. Protect from what? To guard from what? To save from what? What, what, what is Jesus saving us from? What is God saving us from? You know what a sinner is saved from? Listen to me. A sinner is not just saved from their sins. You're not just saved from your sins. Listen to me. You are saved from God. Your sin is not just the only problem. The problem is a holy God and a sinful person. So the reality is what you are saved from and what God saves you from is God saves you from himself. The beauty of the gospel is that God personally intervenes to save people from himself. And as if this wasn't enough, we're only on point one here just so you know. As if this wasn't enough, Paul adds another important thing to this statement. He says, of whom I am the foremost. So when he considers the beauty of God's glory, when he considers the eminent display of his holiness, when he thinks about the nature of sinful human beings, one thing stands out. I am the worst sinner I know. I've said this so many times before. I am the worst sinner that I know. I am. My problem is me. Your problem is you. I can imagine what you've done, but I don't know what you've done. I know what I've done. I I am the worst sinner that I know. Paul is surely not saying that, that other people have sinned less than he has. There had to be other people that Paul knew were just as equally sinful, if not even more so. Instead, what he's identifying here is that his sin, his personal transgression, of the law of God is crystal clear to him. He knows how bad he was. He knows how bad he could be. And for that matter, he still knows how bad he is. He says, I not was the foremost. He says, I am the foremost. So Paul knew he was a forgiven man. He knew that his past was covered by the blood of Jesus. But he never lost the fact, and I pray that you never lose the fact, that he and you are undeserving sinners. You just weren't an undeserving sinner. You are an undeserving sinner. This is the beauty, friends, of what the gospel can do. The more you understand about the majesty and the holiness of God, the more we get him higher and higher and higher. And I feel like that's my aim every Lord's Day, as best as I can, to take the gospel and to show you the beauty of who God is and get him high and high and high and high. And then also to show us the horror of who we are and talk honestly about our sin and be dead serious about the fact that we are awful, wretched sinners. And the incredible thing is, the higher God gets and the more you understand your sin, you'd think the more miserable you would be. But it's actually the reverse. The more you understand about God's holiness and the more you understand about your sinfulness, it increases your joy when you see how merciful God has been to awful sinners and when you know you are the biggest one you know. 
probably the person who thought the most about this idea was Jonathan Edwards. And this week I spent some incredible time in his book, The End for Which God Created the World. Here's what he said. He says, God, in seeking His glory, seeks the good of His creatures because the emanation of His glory implies the happiness of His creatures. And in communicating His fullness for them, He does it for Himself because their good, which He seeks, is so much union and communion with Himself. In other words, God is their good This is why heaven will be absolutely glorious for all of eternity and you will never tire of it because you will see the full eminent display of God's glory and you will know that God in leading you to His glory through His Son did you the ultimate blessing of your life that He led you to Himself because God is your good. God's grace saves undeserving sinners. His aim is to save the foremost of sinners and make them eternally happy. So listen, if you're not happy today, I don't mean if you're not in the midst of sorrow and hardship. I mean joy from the depth of your soul. If you're not happy today, you need to return back to the beauty of this gospel because this will be like a ballast of joy in your soul. God's aim is to save undeserving sinners. Here's the second thing. His aim also is to display His mercy. The second truth that we hear is in verse 16. He began to talk about His grace, this grace in verse 12. And now in verse 16, He expands the lens to be even broader to explain not only God's plan for Him, but God's bigger plan of mercy. In other words, what Paul sees here is that God's aim is not just to save Paul in order to save him from himself, but instead to save Paul so that he could be an example to display, to to be stained glass through which the glory of the gospel shines clearly. So verse 16 clearly identifies that Paul is quite conscious of the fact that without God's individual saving of him, God could do whatever God wanted to do. He didn't have to save Paul. And that his saving of him was part of a bigger plan. His aim in God's deliverance of Paul was not to make much of Paul, but to make much of God. Listen, bottom line, God didn't save you because he needed you or because he got a good catch. God got a bad deal when he got you. He did. And you got a great deal when you got God. So Paul understands this. Look at verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So, so Paul views his, views his past through this lens of looking at his past and seeing that his past, yeah, it said something about him. But you know what his past also did, friends? College Park, his past said something about God. Looking back on his life, he knew that his past was bad. His past was bad just like your past is bad. 
But instead of shamefully wondering what people would think about his past, instead he celebrates what his past says about God and his mercy. Next, the first also tells us that Paul's redemption is a personal matter for Jesus Christ. It is no coincidence that in this text in verse 16 that Paul alters how he normally talks about Jesus from Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. Suddenly he flips it, and it's the first time he does it in the entire book. He flips it and says that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. So Christianity is a relationship not with an idea. It's not a belief just in a system. It's a relationship with a person, the person of Jesus. Jesus Christ personally rescued Paul. Jesus Christ personally rescued you. And notice that this unbelievable personal grace in light of Paul's past was meant to be displayed. Followers of Jesus are meant to be the conduits through which the world sees the beauty of Jesus. Such that your past and all the things that God has saved you from become the means through which God shines forth to the world. That you become, according to 2 Corinthians, the aroma of Christ to the world. That wherever you go, you bring this this aroma of Jesus that you change the environment in your neighborhood, in your home, in, in, your, in your dorm room, in your job, that you, that you are the aroma of Christ that through you shines not perfection. No, that you celebrate that you are a foremost sinner. You are a varsity level sinner, but you have found a college pro level God who rescued you from your awful, awful past. So this display of God's mercy becomes not only personal and not only eclipsing the past, but Paul also saw this as a prototype, a model, if you will. In effect, he wants people to know that if God could rescue him, God could save anyone. And that ought to be your perspective as well to anyone. It becomes a motivation for personal evangelism. Look, if God can save me, friend, he can save you. I don't care what you've done. And hear me, I don't care what you did in this room. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you've done this week. God can save you today. There's nothing that you've ever done that God hasn't already forgiven in Christ those who come to Jesus. And finally, the end game is more believers. He says in verse 16, as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul, like every other grace-receiving person, longs for others to experience this same grace. What a thought that his horrible past could become a beautiful piece of evidence that encourages others to have a relationship with Jesus. So when when you put all this together, what you get is a redemption from God through Jesus in its truest sense. This means that a person has been saved from his or her rebellion And through their salvation, they become the means by which people see how unbelievable God's grace is. So look, you don't have to be perfect. Quit trying. Instead, just fess up that you're not a perfect person. Because as I've said countless times here, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to know somebody who is. And his name is Jesus. Paul captures this thought in Ephesians chapter 2. Take your Bible. Let's go over there and see this text. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 through 9. Paul connects our past, God's grace, 
and how we view ourselves. Notice his argument. This is Ephesians 2, verse 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's our past. Here comes the invasion. But God. Mm. Should have been more amens at that passage. All right, we'll try it again. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. So why did God save you? He saved you to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And therefore, what should be our response? Oh, man, our our response should be joyful humility. People who worship and say, "I, I don't know why he saves me. The aim of the gospel is to save undeserving sinners to display God's great mercy. Here's the final one. It is resulting then in praise to his name. So this passage, College Park, ends with a flourish. Paul breaks out into doxology. This is the ultimate goal of the gospel. It is to the praise of his name. Everything, everything in the Bible leads to this point. The gospel is not just about saving sinners, nor is it just about displaying God's mercy for the conversion of others. The ultimate aim of the gospel is the glory of God. And when a right view of salvation and a right view of the church combine, the effect is glory to God. So biblical soteriology combined with biblical ecclesiology results in unbelievable doxology. God saves his church. He saves this church to display his glory. Or as our title says, you were made to make much of God. That's why you're here. The beautiful thing about this doxology and all doxologies is what they do is they list in rapid fire succession wonderful truths or titles about who God is. Just bang, 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 bang. Notice how he's described in verse 17. He says, To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. First little phrase, King of ages, that word ages can also mean eternal. As NIV, NASB, and King James all translate it, the idea presented in this title is that God rules over all the ages. His sovereignty can is conveyed over all expanses of time. There never was, nor will there ever be, a time when God is not on the throne. He reigns. He reigns forever. Nations come and go. People are born and die. 
Catastrophes happen. Satan at times seems to win. But in the end, our God reigns to the king of ages. And if you wonder about that, just look at your past and realize that if God conquered your past, you think he can't take care of the world? Immortal. The word means incorruptible. It means, listen, beyond the ravages of death and decay. God is untouchable. You can't touch him by the things that cause the unraveling of this universe. Everything in our world is squishy. It changes. It moves. You never know what's real and what isn't. And yet here's God who is immortal. He is incorruptible. That means when God says it, he means it and he always keeps it. It means when God declares something, you can bank your life on it and bank your eternity on it. Everything we know in this life is mortal. It's, 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 it's filled with the consequences of sin. And what this says is God is beyond the reach of corrupting sin. Sin cannot touch him. He's the king of ages. He's immortal. Next, he's invisible. This obviously means at one level that God cannot be seen, but there's more to this word. It means that his glory extends beyond the limits of every horizon you could see. So while creation displays his glory, and while Jesus is the image of the invisible God, this word says that God's glory extends beyond the limits of what you can even possibly imagine. So it's not just that he is invisible, it is that his glory is unimaginable. You can't even think how beautiful he is. And when you see him, and then to know that you are like him, All of eternity will not be enough for you to declare how wonderful he is. He's described as the only God. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. This statement affirms the exclusivity of God as God. That there is no one like him. No one compares to him. He has no equal. No one is in any way his rival. He is the only God. There is nothing like him. Isaiah 45, 18 says, I am the Lord. There is no other. This is not like a person who graduates from Ohio State University and likes to go around saying, the Ohio State University. Whatever in the world that means. If you graduated from the Ohio State University, la-dee-da. <laughs> and then explain to me why your football players say the Ohio State University. I don't care if it's the Ohio. Just say Ohio State University. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. <laughs> Not whooping on Buckeyes. I'm just saying there's a little pride, okay? I'm just saying. Just a little, little, the. Give me a break. There's rivals. There's others. You can, you can compare yourself to other schools. Not with God. There's no rivals. There's no league. There's no competition. There is no other. He is the only God. 
Friends, these words communicate, listen to me, the otherness of God. So, kids, listen to me. God is near. He's close. He's personal. The Bible says he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's why he comes in the form of Jesus. But there's other things the Bible says that God is so much beyond our ability to understand. He's way, 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 way far away. He's imminent. That means he's close. But he's also transcendent, which means he's mysterious. He, he blows the mind. And our puny little human brains can't even fathom the beauty of what God is. And when Paul considers all that God has done, his heart is overwhelmed by the beauty of God. Here's what happens, that God's grace led Paul to God. The good news is that God rescues sinners. And this good news is called in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the overflow of God's grace results in praise that sounds like honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So the king of ages, immortal, invisible. The only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Augustine said it this way, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. This is why everything in creation is designed to lead to one place. Every gift is meant to be a conduit to tell you something about your Creator. It's everything you have in life is designed to point you back to the sovereign, immortal, invisible, only God. In other words, grace, as amazing as it is, pales in comparison to the glory of God. Grace is meant to lead us to God's glory. You were made to make much of God. Again, Here's how Edwards famously has stated it for us. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven, to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the ocean. God is the ocean. These are but, but, but scattered beams. These are shadows. God saves undeserving sinners to display His great mercy to the praise of His name. In other words, God saves you for His own glory. I've been living in this all week been living in Edwards and this little phrase that he says these are but shadows and God is the substance what a, what an unbelievable statement to think I mean think of that the the gifts the, the the children that you have the home that you have the the friends that you have the job that you have they're 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 a shadow they're not the substance and so so here as we close this passage here's my challenge to you college park do not live for shadows when you, when you live for things that are temporary, when you live for things that are gifts over the giver, when you live for things that are temporary, they're, they're good things, but they're shadows. They're real, like a shadow is real, but they don't reflect the ultimate reality. And the problem is that so many people are living for shadows. And you might be here today, and you're, you're living for, for shadows. You You've maybe heard for the first time, maybe this is making sense to you, that God made you for His own glory and the problem is that your sin is, is standing in the way. 
Let me give you some implications of these truths under the banner of not living for shadows. Here's the first. Sin is an empty promise. From the very beginning of time, the enemy has offered sinful choices under the banner of offering you more happiness. It's a shadow. Satan told Eve, you you won't die. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This is what sin always offers. It offers a promise. You'll feel loved. You'll be in control. You'll feel better. People will like you, etc., etc., etc. But the Bible, listen, defines sin as falling short of God's glory. It's saying that God's glory is the substance and sin is a shadow. Why would you live for a shadow? Sin is an empty promise, a bait and switch. You'll be happy. And then you discover you're not. It's a bait and switch that kills and destroys. And in light of all of what God is for us in Christ, in light of the beauty of His glory, friends, do not live for shadows. Secondly, idols are deadly masters. Idolatry is simply loving and worshiping anything more or in the place of God. It's loving the shadow. It is something that controls you when originally you got into it thinking you would control it. That's the crazy thing about idols is we think, oh, I'll take this because this will make me feel better. This will make me more manly. This will make me for feminine. This will fill the relationship void in my life. This will somehow make me feel like I'm a real person. And the problem is you get in and you think you're going to control that thing, but that thing then ends up controlling you. Idolatry is a deadly master in the sense that we take the gifts of God and we turn them into practical gods. We take the blessings of God and we live as if those things are ultimate. Romans 1 says that they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Just think of that. They took the images of an immortal God and they exchanged it for the image of mortal man. It is turning a gift that was supposed to point you to God and it's taking that gift and using it to make much of you. And in so doing, that idol will destroy everything that you were supposed to love. Do not live for shadows. Third, pride is spiritual insanity. Undeserved grace poured out on horrible sinners should exclude all boasting. The more you understand God, the more you understand yourself, the more amazed you should be that God rescued you, He saved you, He cleansed you, He restored you, and to glory in yourself is to be foolish to the extreme. That is why people who are so full of pride, when God gives them what they want and they realize the horrible thing that they have done, say things like, what was I thinking? Exactly. Pride just doesn't make sense. It is spiritual insanity. What are you, crazy? You're going to make something of you? 
Just look at yourself in the Bible. Look at your past. Look at God. You're going to make something of you. You're going to exalt in you. That's crazy stuff. So the Bible says that God's grace excludes all boasting. Think God, think you built your career? You think you built your business? You think you created your family? You think your kids obey because you're so righteous? (laughs) Yeah, right. You think you got money because you're so talented? Everything you have is a gift from God. Who in the world are you to boast in what you have? Everything you have, you've received. What are you, crazy? Pride is spiritual insanity. Here's the last one, and this is the most serious. Misdirected joy is eternally unspeakable. Hear me. A rejection of the glory of God and the person of Christ is to take your joy in something else. It is in effect to say, I see the cross, I see what Jesus did, but that's really not as attractive as this. To think that then you are better than others, like you've sinned less than other people, to think that you won't leave your sinful actions, to to believe that you'd be happier without God, and that eternity without God is not really that bad. Edwards says that the love of God and the wrath of God are both equally unspeakable. So don't you think for a moment that God is all loving as if all loving is all that he is. Oh, he is all loving. But he loves his glory far more than he loves you. And because of that, everything that's ever been wrong with this world will be made right. Do you know what hell is? Hell is simply God giving you what you want. A godless existence. Get out of my life, God. Get off my back. Stop telling me what to do. And when God gives you what you want, it's hell. And then you wake up realizing you have made an eternally terrible choice. Don't live for shadows. So... What is God up to? What is he doing? What is the message of the Bible? What's the meaning of life? What is the chief end of man? All of these questions are answered in the Bible clearly and unequivocally. And it's this answer. God saves undeserving sinners to display his great mercy to the praise of his name. He made you to make much of him. And when you understand this truth, in light of all that you are, and all that you've done, and all that he is, your heart cannot help breaking out into doxology. With unbelievable statements like this, read this with me. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, help us to be the kind of people who live in doxology because we understand the beauty and the awe of Your grace. And I pray today, for men and women dabbling in shadows of pride and idolatry and sin, 
He'd wake them up to what they're living for. They'd see the adulterous relationship. They'd see pornography. They'd see an eating disorder. They'd, 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 they'd see the covetousness that plagues their life. They'd see how they handle their finances and their, what they look in the mirror and see. The, they'll see their dissatisfaction with their marital status. And they would say, God, these are shadows. Why am I living for these? And they'd run today to you. Not just as God, but as a greater good. Because your aim is not only to glorify your name, but it is also to make your creatures eternally happy in you. And Father, for those today who do not know you, who at this very moment risk eternal judgment because they refuse to bend their knee, today would you open their eyes and help them to see that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that they need to decide. No more messing around, no more playing games that they today will say, I'm done living for shadows. It's time for me to live for Christ. Listen, if you're living for shadows today, there's some folks up here who'd love to pray you out of that world into the glorious light of the grace of Christ. They're here to serve you today. All right? College Park, I love you. Thanks for coming today.